our Bibles and turn to John 17. John 17, beginning in verse 13. Yeah, long prayer, and we're not going to take time to look at all the prayer, but there are some verses I think that will be helpful to West Acres Baptist Church, and I forgot to turn this little thing on. Maybe I need to turn it back off. <laughs> okay. Okay. Do I need to go back through all that again? <laughs> all right. Stand if you're able in honor of God's word as I read John 17, beginning in verse uh, 13 and down through verse 21. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me throughout their, through their word, that they may all may be one as you and the Father are me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that before you went to the cross, Jesus, you prayed for us. You prayed for the disciples, but you ultimately prayed for us. And we thank you. We thank you for your spirit, which bears witness with our spirit that we are your children. And Lord, I pray that as we realize we are not in the world, or we are in the world, but not of the world, and Lord, that we would take your word to a lost and dying world. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. You notice there's some things about this prayer of Jesus. One, he did not say, Father God, I pray that you would send rescue planes and take them out and get them. He didn't pray that, did he? No. You see, that would destroy his plan for us. You notice he did not say, do not wrap them in bubble wrap. You know, sometimes I wish he would wrap us in, uh, we lived up north most of my ministry. Uh, I'm, I'm one of those northern guys, that's why I don't talk like you all do. <laughs> I'm from Ohio. If you, have to, if you wonder, I'm a big, huge Buckeye fan. We get this nasty stuff up there called snow. I pastored for nearly 10 years outside of a little community called Buffalo, New York. Anybody know anything about Buffalo, New York? Yeah, they're famous for buffalo wings. I understand that. But the other thing they're famous for, you run the snowblower every hour on the hour, whether it needs it or not. They're going to get a lot of snow. And so she'll often threaten to wrap me in bubble wrap because... Your feet just slip out from under you. Next thing you know, you're kissing the sidewalk 
because of the ice and snow. So, but God never prayed that we wouldn't encounter evil. Jesus prayed that even though we are going to encounter evil, that he would protect us from the evil one. Knowing that as we go out into the world with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is with us, that he would protect us, and that he would help us to be able to overcome the evil that we're going to encounter. I mean, we live in a lost world that's becoming more and more lost every day. We're losing the battle for the gospel. For the last 20-some years, Southern Baptists have seen their numbers of baptisms go down and down and down and down. No matter how much we have tried, no matter how much we have come out with all these new programs, whether it's Who's Your One, or whether it's Evangelism Explosion, or whether it's Christian Witness Training, or whatever we might happen to have, the Four Laws, and all those other things that we have done over the years, our numbers keep going down and down and down. But God didn't say, wrap them in bubble wrap. He said, protect them from the evil one. His prayer was one of protection. Protect them from succumbing to the evil one. Because Jesus, more than anybody, understood the battles that they were going to face. Jesus understood because he faced them every day. Whether it's in the beginning of his ministry, where the, uh, he was taken into the wilderness and the devil tempted him. No, he did not give in to the temptation, but he, uh, he endured more temptation than any of us do. As we think about the battle, we face a spiritual battle every day. Whether it is Ephesians chapter 6, which talks specifically about that, or whether it is here, the battle is not merely with spiritual weapons, but we battle against flesh and blood. We battle against sin in this world. And whether it's Ephesians or it's John, both texts recognize the critical nature of prayer in this hostile setting. It is our number one weapon in the battle. Protect them from the evil one. Our battle, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You know, a, few, a number of years ago, been, I can't remember how many years ago, we went to a place called Christus Gardens in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I've heard it's not there anymore, but it, it was there for a long time. And what was very interesting about that, it was a wax museum and a lot of biblical scenes and scenes of Jesus, but I was fascinated by one of the last exhibits we saw that was there. And it was this fine-looking gentleman in a fine-looking business suit, very attractive young man-looking. And you know who he represented? Satan. You might, some of you are like, oh, wait, wait a minute, hold on. My image of Satan is, is, is a long tail with a pitchfork and horns and all that other kind of stuff. Okay, I have a question for you. If a guy comes up to you 
and he's got a long tail, and he's got horns coming out of his head, and he's got all this other stuff about him. Anybody here going to talk with him? What are you going to do? Where's my car keys and how do I get out of here? Amen? Amen. That isn't how the devil approaches us. He's more like the guy in the business suit, the clean-cut hair, sharp-looking guy. I was at the cowboy, one of our, my churches when I was Association of Missionary in, in um, Black River Association, was way out near Hardy, and it was a cowboy church. And they were having baptism that day out there in the Spring River. And one of the guys that was being baptized had more tattoos than you could count. His tats completely covered his face. His face looked green. My wife looked at me and said, can he get those taken off? I said, no, but think about the testimony he has. Look what sin did to my life, and now look what Jesus has changed me on the inside. I have the scars of my past life, but now let me tell you what he's done to me inside. I thought, he has a... But you know, if you see him on the street... Oh my goodness, you're not going to want to be around him. You're going to, your mind is going to think, oh my goodness, this guy's scary. But he has a heart of gold. Jesus has changed him from the inside out. And that was the message I took away all these years ago from Christus Gardens. That the devil doesn't come to us in the ugly form we think of, but he's going to be as attractive as it can be. For guys, he may look like a beautiful woman. For women, he may look like a handsome young man. However it might be, and I'm not talking about just the sexual temptation of sin. For some of us, it may be that attractive meal that we know we shouldn't have. Or it may be, you know, I'll take that drink just to avoid the pain that I have in my heart. Or I'll take that pill to get away from it. There's all different kinds of ways that the devil may make something look very attractive. But yet we shouldn't partake because it, it, you know, the Bible doesn't say do not drink. It says do not get drunk, but it doesn't say do not drink. Jesus turned water into wine. I, I, I read it in the scriptures. But the reality is how we use the things that are before us. Do we use them for God's glory? Not. Now, personally, I don't drink at all. None. Because my dad was an alcoholic. I saw firsthand how it destroyed his life. He died at the age of 39. He was saved before he died, but he had destroyed his body so much he had a heart attack and died at a VA hospital in Marion, Indiana, at the age of 39. Where did he learn to drink? He grew up in a family of it, and at the age of 16, he was a corporal in the Army, and he commanded a squad because his sergeant was killed in Korea. That's why I don't drink. I don't think it helps our witness. I don't think, you know, there's a lot of things I could say about it. But the point is, how do we battle against those kinds of weapons that the devil has? Prayer. Prayer is our number one weapon. 
My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. So what is Jesus' prayer for us? Number one, when you look at verse, 15, verse 21, I'm sorry, Jesus prays for unity, that they all may be one as you and the Father are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. You notice one thing about the world? Do they lack opinions? No. Everybody's got their own opinion. If you stick around a couple of minutes, they will tell you about it. And it may be different than yours. That's the world. What about the church? You see, God intended that the church would be one wrapped around him. It's not my way. It's not your way. It's not his way. It's not her way. It's his way. How do we figure that part out? Prayer. But how many times have you heard people say, in a business meeting, well, God told me, if God wants us to be one, you think he's only going to tell one person? Hmm. No. And if he does, then we all need to pray and say, God, if you told him, tell me, because I'm not sure about all this. And we need to pray it through some more. Jesus prays for unity. Unity is a model by the relationship of Jesus and God. You notice from the very beginning, turn back to John chapter 1 for a moment. Hang on to 17. But turn back with me, if you would, to John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1. You notice how John begins that gospel? I think it's just a, a, a great word from the Lord right there. It speaks so much to what we're talking about this morning. In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. You know anything about that passage? The Word was God. Everything was all in him. I and the Father are one, Jesus would say. Unity is the model of the relationship between Jesus and God. Unity is based on the direct relationships of believers in the Godhead. That they may also be one in us. One commentator writes, Unity has the foundation of indwelling. Remember the scripture that says, his, his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We can call him Abba, Father, which is to say, Daddy. Yeah. Amen. I and the Father are one. That relationship of believers with God is premised on the community who together experience a oneness with God. Unity is the model of the relationship between God and Jesus. Unity is based on direct relationship of believers with the Godhead. Unity is when God's people come together. When the world sees church in harmony with God and with each other, it is at that point that God is able to move in that church. 
We talk about revival, amen? We talk about, oh, we need revival. Think about the word revival. This will change maybe your thought about it. You see, revive is to revive something that was alive and is dead and needs to come back. If a person is lost, they're not alive in God. Revival is for the church. To revive the church so that it is more like God and Jesus Christ. So the church can do in the world what God intended the church to do. Yes, we want to see people saved. That's a part of revival. But the main thing is to revive a living church that was vibrant for God but has gotten away. Doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It's kind of like the old story of the husband and wife. They're driving down the road and they see that they've been married for a long time, by the way. And this is before cars, you know, you can't do this anymore. You got all this stuff in the middle now between the seats. But back then, you know, husbands and wives could sit close to each other in the car. Well, this old couple was driving down the road and they saw this young couple and you couldn't hardly tell where one ended because they were sitting so close together. And the wife looked over at the husband and said, look at them. We were once like that. The husband looked back at his wife and said, who moved? You see, he's still sitting where the steering wheel is. He can't move. But she did. We're talking about a church that is not where God wants us to be. The question is, who moved? I would say, God's still in, in heaven, amen? His throne is still there. He didn't move. Somebody else did, and that's the church. So Jesus prays for unity. He, Jesus prays that our, realizes that our number one weapon in this battle is prayer. Jesus also prays for joy. Look back at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have a joy fulfilled in themselves. These things I speak. These things I say. The things that are in that prayer, but all of the word of God is a part of that. These things I speak. In the world, I'm speaking them to the world as well as to the church. Why? That the church may have joy. Joy at his birth, back in 16, verse 20 and following. Joy that disciples experienced when they were able to abide in Jesus and obey 1511. Joy of the bridegroom who sees the wedding fulfilled. Joy at the harvest. Joy at his resurrection. Folks, as people of God, we should be happy. In Jesus. When we come to God's house, we ought to be smiling. When we come to God's house, in spite of COVID, we ought to at least want to air hug each other because we're glad to see each other. Our niece, uh, Shell's sister's um, daughter, I guess it'd be our grandniece, Becca, just came down with COVID. They live up north of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. She is 16 years old. And uh, we sent her air hugs 
One, because of the distance. Two, because when somebody has COVID, you can't get around them. Yeah, I mean, when Cheryl had COVID, I would say, here's an air hug. I can't, I can't get that close to you, you know. We might be able to hug your wife for a few days. It's a little different. But, you know, I never, Lord protected me. I never got sick. Maybe because I had COVID in January of this year. But, you know, there ought to be that joy when we're around each other. Why? The joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is in my heart. The joy of the Lord overflows, and people around us ought to be able to see that. And that's what Jesus is talking about there in verse 13, that we would have joy at all the different things that he is doing in our life. Also, Jesus prays for purity. Look at verse 17. Let me read 16 and 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he says this interesting phrase with an interesting word. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, what does that mean? Think about that. It's one of those fancy words preachers use a lot, and sometimes we just don't take time to explain them. Simple definition for sanctify is we're being set aside to be like Jesus different from the world, but set aside for a purpose to walk with him, to serve him, to tell others about him. How are we sanctified as Christians? There is a Christian group out there, two guys, uh, one's Steve, and I've forgotten the other guy's name this morning. They're called the Skit Guys. And they do a funny little skit that I've seen a couple of times when I've seen them in churches. Uh, I've seen them at the Southern Baptist Convention. I've seen them just to do the same skit. And one of them is playing the role of the Christian. And the other one is playing the role of God's Holy Spirit. And, and, and the Christian has these things he needs to get rid of. And as he's standing, the guy, the other Steve, takes what looks, you know, what he's imagining, pretending, is a chisel and a hammer. And he hits him, boom, boom. And he jumps, you know, like, oh, that hurts. That's what the sanctification process is. It is God's spirit chipping away at all of the old stuff in our life so that we can become more like him. Famous sculptor was one time asked, how in the world do you take a block of marble and make it into a beautiful horse or something, whatever he's turning it into? He says, I just chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. That's that painful process sometimes when God is working on our lives. He is chipping away everything that doesn't look like a child of God. That's what sanctification is. That's what it means when he takes and removes all that junk in our lives, if we allow him, to make us more like him. One of the best definitions of sanctification, it is simply being made holy by God. The original words for holy and sanctification are very closely related in the original language. Anytime you see the words holy or saint, you're dealing with the whole idea of sanctification. Sanctification is something that we have to, we've got to because of God's holy standard is perfection. And if you have any doubt for that, Mark down, look this up later. It take me a while to read the verse. It's called 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Here's the verse. 
Be ye holy, for I am holy. That's it. That's all. That's the whole verse. Now, God knows you and I cannot be perfect. There's only one person that did that, and that was Jesus. So we daily need forgiveness of our sins. But he is saying, be ye holy, which means set apart for my purpose. For he is holy. Another key word to think about sanctification is simply us being made more like our Savior. Sanctification is in part a brand new position in life. When we receive Christ as our Savior, he comes in, he takes over, and we become more and more like him. And that ought to be our prayer every single day that we become more like him. Part of that transformation process has to do with the purification from sin. That's saying, God, forgive me. God, help me. God, protect me. God, guide me. Then I might not do that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Ultimately, also, Jesus prays for purpose. Look at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Why do we have church? Yes, to worship. Yes, to help us during the week. But it also prepares us because when we leave here, it's a whole different battle than when we're in here. And so, verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus didn't mean that he's sending us to the cross, but he means that just as he suffered in his life for the gospel, we are going to have tough days. Luke chapter 4, verse 43 says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. The citizens of the kingdom should also proclaim the good news. They should also be motivated to share the gospel to others. They should be motivated to sow the word of truth in the world. How about us in the church? Do we have a glimpse of the glory? Think about what it's going to be like. We have many songs that tell us what heaven might be like. I am convinced we're just scratching the surface. I can't imagine, I mean, like the song by uh, Mercy, you know, I can't imagine that, what it's going to be like. What, what heaven is, well, words don't, we, we don't have words in the English language or any other language that I've ever looked at to describe what it's going to be like. Do we have a glimpse of the glory of God? Do we have a glimpse of what God means by going and telling and sowing the word of God? Now, let me ask you this. You've been through a lot of different classes on how to tell people about Jesus. Let me make it real, real simple. 
just a couple of questions and you can have a testimony that will, I think, change people's lives and it cuts them off from being able to argue the Bible. Because that's one of the big defenses that will argue the Bible, right? Think about what your life was before Jesus. Think about how he has changed your life and think about how he came into your life. If you can answer those three questions to another person who doesn't know Jesus, they can't argue it because that's your experience. Now, it helps to know John 3.16. It helps to know the Roman road. It helps to know some of that, but you don't have to memorize it verbatim. The main thing is, what was it before? How I heard about him? How I came to know him? And what a difference he's made in my life. You get that down, you can tell anybody about Jesus. Now, they may not accept. Now, I mean, the rich young ruler walked away with his head down. But Jesus talking to him, of all people. So not everybody was saved even that Jesus talked to. Do we have a tendency to promote more the glory of our own accomplishments rather than God? Do we succumb to the temptation of broadcasting the shortcomings of our church, of others. Well, you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so over there, and they claim to be a Christian, you know. Be it not so. We have the assurance of protection from the word of our Lord. So uh, as we think about what's going to happen over the next few weeks, if you all let me kind of hang around here a little bit, I get used to your stairs. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. There we go. All right. No kissing the carpet today. All right. As we think about 